Hey, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the latest live episode of In With The Old. We're a video podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's word, and helping you rediscover the Old Testament for the life of faith. Welcome to all those that are live with us here tonight on YouTube. We're so excited to have you here. If you'd like to join us and chat with us live while we're recording these episodes, we invite you to like and share our Facebook page at In With The Old and join us every Monday night at 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. Tonight, we've got a really good episode. We're going to be talking about <laughs> Satan or the Satan in the book of Job. And joining me as ever is my co-host, Dr. Tim. Tim, what's going on? How are you doing this evening? Hey, things are going well in Missouri. It's a beautiful evening and a great, great opportunity to talk about the Old Testament, talk about your stomping grounds, Job. And so I, I hope I have my, uh, my guns ready for this, for this debate. Well, um, so as Tim alluded <laughs> to, part of my dissertation was in the book of Job, but Tim, I did not touch Satan in the least. I touched none oh. of these passages, so you're on safe grounds, my friend. <laughs> uh, wise man. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is our third episode of the Counterpoint series. In this series, Dr. Tim and I are picking up topics that we have differing opinions on and debating them. Uh, Tim, just looking back at these last two weeks, it's been really fun. Uh, I've enjoyed yeah. the rigorous kind of mental exercise of preparing. And also after the fact, I feel like I keep thinking and keep going, wow, there's still more, more to go through. We rabbit trail a little bit. So I just want to start tonight by saying I really appreciate these last couple of weeks. And so thank you for these really stirring discussions. And I'm looking forward to more. Oh, ditto, man. Ditto. I'm ready for it. Yeah. All right. So the format of these episodes is both Dr. Tim and I will take turns presenting our views. And then after that, we'll move to a free form question and answer session. So listeners, uh, if you are here live with us, go ahead and as we're talking, go ahead and start putting your questions in the chat and we'll try to address those once we've mute, moved rather to the Q&A section. So I'm going to start. Now to orientate us, we're dealing with the book of Job and specifically we're dealing with just the first two chapters, right, Tim? So yes. in Job chapter one, if you have a Bible in front of you, go ahead and pull it open. In Job chapter one, we're introduced to Job. We're not terribly creative when it comes to naming our biblical <laughs> books. Now, in the first five verses, we're given a little like snippet of who this guy is. We see that he is a wealthy man. We get a little bit of the knowledge of his family, and then we get a cut. In verse six, we move up to the heavenly scene, and the sons of God are coming before him, and it says Satan, or the Satan, comes in with them. So Tim and I's debate is going to be actually on that. Who is this figure? Who is the Satan? Uh, this character only shows up in Job chapter one and two. So part of our debate is not just going to be who or what is this figure, but how significant is this figure to the story? So I'm going to present my view first. And here is my thesis. My thesis is that importing the theology of Satan from the New Testament into this story is hermeneutically improper and distorts the role of this character in the story. So to walk us through this, Tim, I have three elements I want to kind of read from my notes here. First, hermeneutics. Now, that's a big fancy word. Hermeneutics is the study of the Bible, its principles, its methods, its rules, etc. Hermeneutically, I don't think you can read the Bible forward and backward. 
That is, I don't think you can necessarily take New Testament theology and lay it over the Old Testament. That distorts something that is very important in hermeneutics, which is original context. What did this story mean for its original audience? Because of that, I don't think we can read the Bible backward, only forward. So when we read the book of Job, we cannot use any of the New Testament texts and the development of the theology of Satan to interpret this passage. To do so would put improper values. The people who read the story originally, right, would not have them. So I think we have to evaluate this character based on what he does and what we know about him from the time of writing, which is going to be a question we'll have to deal with probably in the Q&A section, when was Job written? Now, even if we can eventually know more about this person, and more on that in a moment, I believe we must be careful about what we put into the story, lest we begin reading things into the text. This in theology is known as eisegesis, reading into the text, rather than exegesis, reading out of the text. Reading out is good, reading in, less so. So hermeneutically, I think we need to be careful. My second element I want us to consider is the text itself. We keep saying the Satan, and that's important because the Satan of Job is a not a person named Satan. It cannot be grammatically. Tim and I actually won't disagree on this. We'll both agree. Mm-hmm. Rather, the Satan is a title. Now, why can I say this so definitively? Well, because it is the Satan. The word Satan or Satan is just a transliteration of a Hebrew word, but we say here Ha-Satan, the Satan, because it has an article attached to it. Articles in Hebrew, and this is a solid grammatical rule, can never be attached to a name. You can't have the Moses, the David, the Abraham. Instead, the is applied to titles. So simply because it's the Satan means that we can't translate this as Satan. In fact, Tim, much to my chagrin, I could not find a mainline translation that actually just says Satan. It's really frustrating. All of them, or rather, they all just say Satan. None of them say the Mm -hmm. Satan. So I think that's kind of Mm -hmm. problematic. But let's Mm -hmm. put that aside. Now, we also, as a second point textually, shouldn't conflate a title with a singular person. Multiple Mm -hmm. people may hold a singular title. For instance, we've had multiple presidents in the United States. If I say Mr. President today... The person I'm referring to is not the same person I would have been referring to 50 years ago, 80 years ago, 100 years ago. Titles can be shared. So we need to file that away as well. It would be unfair to just patently assume that just because you have titles in two places, it's the same person. Now, what does the word Satan mean? Well, the Hebrew word just means adversary or opponent in a military sphere or political sphere an opposing party, a prosecutor, or possibly a personal name. These definitions come from the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, Hallet. Now, the word Satan occurs 27 times in the Old Testament, 14 of them in these two chapters of Job. So it has the bulk of its usage. Other references, though, come in some interesting places. In Psalm 109.6, we have it used in a courtroom scene. And file that away, because I think courtroom scene is something important. Interestingly, in Numbers 22, Balaam's donkey. We mentioned that last week. Mm -hmm. The thing sent to kill Balaam is an angel of the Lord called Satan. That's quite fascinating. In 1 Chronicles 21.1, it is used. And in fact, that is arguably the only place where it might actually be a name, because it is just 
Satan is sent against Israel. Now, we know textually that it does not always mean the devil. And for clarity's sake, Tim, I'm going to refer to the personified enemy of God called Satan often in the New Testament. I'm going to call him the devil, just so we don't confuse ourselves here in the Old Testament, if that's all right by you. Um, so uh, it doesn't always mean him. It can also not necessarily mean an angelic creature. 1 Samuel 29, 2 Samuel 19, 1 Kings 11 in three places, all use Satan to refer to a human adversary. The other major story with Satan is Zechariah 3, 1 and following, and this is also clearly a courtroom scene. So textually, it does mean adversary. It could have a meaning in a courtroom heavenly prosecutor scene or, or sense, which is what I'm going to be arguing. Now, thirdly, contextually, we look just at the story of Job readers, and you can check me on this. Please do. You should actually be checking and verifying. Don't just take our <laughs> word for it. Dig into the text. This figure, the Satan uh, uh, of Job, is not necessarily the devil of the New Testament. I believe, and I'm going to argue, he's a being functioning within the court of God in an appointed position ostensibly an accuser or a prosecutor, possibly an executioner. We can talk about that in the Q&A. He appears to fulfill a function in God's courtroom. A prosecutor is part of any court. That doesn't make them bad. It means they have a job, which is to attempt to accuse people. But they are fulfilling their rightful function when they do that. Now, he appears to fulfill this function. The motif of the book is going to continually refer back to a courtroom scene. So I believe that makes sense. I don't even think from Job 1 and 2, we can necessarily say he's opposing God's will in any meaningful way. Let's look at what the story tells us. He tells us he's counted among the Bene Elohim, just the sons of God, an Old Testament expression for the heavenly host, spiritual beings, angelic creatures, insert your preferred term. When asked where he's come from, he says he's come from the earth, which explains why he's been called out. His role has him outside the courtroom or heavenly realm, generally. That doesn't necessarily mean he has been cast down. Simply, his role is to be elsewhere. Angels travel to the earth. They are certainly not cast out creatures. His description uh, of roaming about, I always read this as a kid, as something like nefarious, stalking, lurking. There's no such implication by the terms. It means he's crisscrossed. He's circled around. He's searched out. He's made a uh, transit of the area he's gone to. It's used neutrally or positively numerous other times in the Old Testament. He has done what he's supposed to do, which is search for people to accuse. Importantly, God is going to start the discussion. God is the one who brings up Job, not the accuser, which I find very fascinating. Have you considered my servant Job? Now, the Satan, when asked about Job, answers kind of interestingly. When asked about Job's uh, faith, he says, I, I, paraphrasing here, he seems to assume that Job is pious, but doubts that it is sincere. He says, I think Job serves you for a reason, because you placed a hedge of protection around him. Now, there is an edge to the story here that makes my view somewhat uncomfortable. Satan uses an oath formula, or the Satan. He says, I am sure I will make an oath, because I believe that Job will denounce you, God when you take away this protection. Now, eventually, what is the outcome of Job uh, being subjected to this heavenly courtroom scene that he does not know about? 
Well, both immediately and in the long term, there's some interesting things. Immediately in the two stories where uh, Satan appears and is sent out to first take away the possessions of Job and then afflict Job himself, we see that there is a chink in Job's armor. See, the first time he comes and, and faces the loss of his kids, this horrific loss, loss of stuff, um, it, it ends by saying, in this he did not sin nor charge God with wrongdoing. Excellent. Second time it comes around, though, do you notice there's a change? It says, in this he did not sin in his words. That's not quite as strong as the first time around. Something is happening, and the rest of the book is going to begin expounding upon that. What has changed? Because here's the thing, long term, the Satan isn't quite right, but he's not entirely wrong. Job does have a flaw in his faith. Now, what that flaw is maybe isn't critical for our discussion. Um, I tend to think it's his view of God is too small. I think he sees the spiritual realms, he sees beings, and he thinks they are God and does not see God beyond just the heavenly created beings. I don't think you have to agree with me on that to agree with this point. The Satan is not right that Job would denounce God. Job doesn't do that. But he is right that Job's faith did require deepening. So I ask, did he actually oppose the will of God? Or through his actions, has he caused someone to now come into a deeper faith with God? That's an interesting point. He does not show up, by the way, at the end of the book to have a resolution. He is kind of cast aside, which brings me to my final key point. Focusing on this figure, and a lot of ink is spilled on this figure. <laughs> We're having a podcast about it. But focusing on this figure obscures the high theology of this book, and I think obscures the message if we think that this is the devil. The key figures of this book are Job and God and their relationship. While there seems to be an obvious parallel between this role and the eventual personified enemy of God, is that this figure that we see in Job? I don't know, and I tend to think not. Alternatively, are we seeing the devil's replacement? Is this the next angel after the devil was thrown out of his role? We can talk about that in the QA. Is this what he once was but is no longer? So to sum it back up, I'll kind of restate my thesis. I believe that importing the theology we have in the New Testament about Satan is improper. This character seems to be a member of the heavenly court fulfilling his duty, and I don't know if we can push this character much beyond that description. So that's my view. A little fun. And I see now the corner of my eye, Chad is going a little nuts. I'll read that in a moment. But before I do that, Tim, <laughs> let me hand it over to you to tell us a little bit about your view. All right. Hey, well, thank you, Brian. And, uh, and I just want to say this up front. This is uh, a discussion that for some might be a little bit disorienting, uh, but that's okay. And Brian, as you know, there was a little bit of controversy about this a couple of years ago, uh, really based on uh, a mistranslation of Hasatan as a proper noun. And so I want to start off by, by just uh, saying I would normally agree with Brian that we cannot read the Bible backwards. And essentially, that means that we have to take the information that we have at the time of writing. And we'll probably talk about the time of writing later in the Q&A. But we have to consider who the audience is at the time of writing and consider what they would have known. Uh, but I also think in this case, I see it similar to other typologies in the New Testament or the Old Testament. 
where the Old Testament kind of gives us breadcrumbs, as it were, uh, to, to show us that, yes, in, in a particular story, in a particular instance, uh, there's only so much that we know, but the breadcrumbs show us that, hey, there's a little bit more that's going to be revealed later. And I think that's what's going on here in the book of Job. And I'm going to try and explain that. So uh, here's the agreement that I have with Brian. Satan, Hasatan is almost certainly a title. Uh, and we know that because of what Brian stated so well. That definite article, which would be translated English as the, uh, is attached to Satan, the noun Satan, in every instance in Job. Uh, so literally, it would be Hasatan or the Satan. In other words, we, we pretty much know definitively it's not meant to be a proper name. Now, uh, it's because of the New Testament that, as Brian mentioned, so many of our translations go back and they make it a proper name. Uh, but really, technically, with the Hebrew, that's not the best translation. Uh, I'm going to refer to Satan as the accuser in this, um, and, and just because I think that does fit the function in Job. Uh, what do we also see? Brian mentioned it. The accuser is referred to as a son of God, B'nai Elohim. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, angels are referred to in various places in the Old Testament as sons of God. Humans are also referred to as sons of God, which creates a little bit of ambiguity at times. But very clearly, uh, this accuser is an angelic being who's part of the heavenly court. So on that, I totally agree with Brian. Uh, but where I think I, I tend to put more weight on some of the, the tension or, or whether you want to say like the, the dark background music that we're intended to hear in the background of Job, I think that the accuser or Hasatan in this story is presented as, in one sense, not just functioning under God as his, uh, as his steward or as his prosecutor in the heavenly court, I think we are meant to feel the tension that the accuser is trying to go even beyond uh, God's, God's designed program for him. And here's why I think that. Because even as God brings up Job the accuser, and I think that's so important, it's not because Job any, did anything wrong, and sometimes we, we get into our minds that Satan brought Job up. No, God is the one who said, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, at which point, the accuser comes and he basically says to God, well, of course, and this is paraphrase again, I've, I've considered him and of course he's going to bless you. Of course you're going to say he's righteous. Why? Because you've protected him. Yes, he's a man of perfect integrity. Yes, he fears God and turns away from evil because his life is perfect. But here's where I think, here's where I think we see that kind of uh, notorious undertone. It's in Hasatan's reference where he says, but stretch out in your stand, hand and strike everything owns, and he will surely curse you to uh, your face. And, and this is a, a, a twofold uh, nefarious statement. First is, he's not just trying to sift through uh, Job's faith. He's trying to say to God, no, I think I can actually get him to curse you to your face. In other words, God, not only are you wrong, but you are exactly wrong. You are precisely wrong. Job is not righteous. He will actually curse you under the right circumstances. Uh, but here's where I think we also see kind of a challenge beyond what we would normally see in that heavenly courtroom scene. The accuser here is basically saying to God, God, I think you are wrong about this. Uh, and, and this goes beyond, say, a prosecuting attorney before a judge. This goes to a, a, an out-of-bounds kind of statement in my mind 
about how even an angel would speak to God apart from there being some kind of rebellious spirit. I mean, think of this. For the prosecutor to say to, to the Most High, actually, your assessment of Job is wrong, and I'll prove it to you. To me, that goes beyond what we would normally see in, uh, say, an objective accuser, accusatory role um, or a prosecuting attorney who's just trying to, say, honor God by showing that Satan is or, or that Job is a sinner. Um, and here's where I think we see another connection. Uh, in Zechariah 3, Brian mentioned this, Hasatan, right? The Satan comes up in another heavenly courtroom scene. And I think importantly in that scene, uh, basically, it's an exilic scene. Joshua, who's the high priest, comes into the throne room of heaven, and the angel of the Lord actually rebukes Hasatan, uh, at which point we see, again, this isn't simply an angel doing his job. He's rebuked by the angel of the Lord, uh, and he's basically told, stop, you are going too far. You are throwing Joshua's sins at him, but the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Now, to the point that this speaks to function, I think that's actually true, right? Hasatan means the accuser, right? And that is a statement of his function. But I think uh, it's also very possible to see that perhaps Satan, or what Brian referred to or who Brian referred to as the devil, perhaps he retained that role to some degree even after the fall. And we see part of, uh, part of what his rebellion was was going beyond the bounds that God gave for him to properly accuse uh, human beings. Um, so I'll talk about that more a little bit later, but I think an indication that that's a actually a very old interpretation is the fact that the, the Septuagint, the LXX, refers to Hasatan or translate Hasatan as the Diablos or the devil. And I think that even choice of translation indicates that before Christ, before the New Testament and the identifications there, there was a tradition even within Judaism of seeing Hasatan as someone who was beyond simply an objective prosecutor or an objective accuser and someone who was opposing the purposes of God. So um, let's talk just briefly about the New Testament. I normally, again, agree that we need to take only the information we have at the time, except for in situations where there seem to be the breadcrumbs that cause us to lift our eyes and look forward. So who is the Hasatan, and how do those breadcrumbs work themselves out? Well, the New Testament, I do think, gives us some pointers. So uh, the New Testament speaks of Satan's pride, and Paul, by the way, does uh, use the name of Satan in the New Testament as an actual proper name, right? The definite article in various places is dropped. He seems to refer to Satan as a being, uh, and rather than using the name, he uses the title that kind of becomes the name. You know, think of a nickname that you just start to refer to someone as. My favorite is Albert Pujols, who is referred to as the machine, right? Um, but in the New Testament, we see various places where this same being seems to be identified with Satan and then ultimately identified with the serpent. Uh, and so those breadcrumbs in the Old Testament that point to the kind of overreaching of Hasatan's role eventually, to me, in the New Testament culminate with a, an identification of Hasatan as the devil, as Brian mentioned. And I think, uh, I think it is pretty definitive in the New Testament. And I would just, uh, on the premise of disagreeing with Brian's hermeneutical point, I think it is valid for us to look at that and say, okay, there were breadcrumbs in Job, there were breadcrumbs in Zechariah, there were breadcrumbs in some of these other passages, and in the New Testament, those breadcrumbs ultimately lead us to a destination. 
In other words, I would say there is hermeneutical warrant to read a little bit forward into the New Testament and then make the identification. Although, here's where I really agree with Brian. The theology of Job is not dependent upon the character of Satan. It's not dependent upon the character of Hasatan. In fact, if anything, Hasatan is underplayed. As Brian mentioned, he's, he comes forward in the prologue, but he's not mentioned at the end of the book. So whoever the identification is of Hasatan, that really is not the point of the book. The point of the book, as Brian mentioned, really has to do uh, with what Job says at the very end. I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. And so whoever Hasatan is, I believe it is Satan. I believe that identification is consistent in particular places in the Old Testament and then in the New. But I fundamentally agree with Brian that the identification of this figure is not the point of Job. And that's where, unfortunately, because we have a fascination with Satan in our culture, uh, we tend to overplay the significance of his role in the story rather than, and this is where, again, I agree with Brian, seeing Hasatan or seeing Satan as a tool in God's hands to ultimately bring about a greater faith, a greater relationship than he even had with Job in the beginning. And so, yes, in the beginning, Job was righteous, but in the end, his faith was tested, and he, of course, came through the test uh, with, with flying colors, uh, although at times he had to recognize his limitations. Uh, so that's my position, and uh, I'm ready for some q and I'm ready for Brian. Uh, Brian, here I stand. I can do no other. All right. Hey, good historical <laughs> reference. So thank you for that, Tim. Very well done. Thank you for laying that out for us. So listeners, if you're joining us here this evening, I already have a few good questions that have come in. I've recorded those down. Um, feel free to keep putting those out there. We'll uh, address them as they come up in our discussion. So Tim, uh, I have one quick clarification question for you, and then I want to address something that you brought up. So just okay. a quick thing so I know where you're at. The figure mm -hmm. in Job is using the title, the Satan. Yes. This is the same person, character, figure, however you want to define that. That will eventually be the devil, the serpent, etc. The personified in that is God. that is my position. Okay. Yes. Okay. Just want to make sure I, I did get that clear and didn't import that on you. So something yep. you brought up was the Septuagint. So the Septuagint, right, is yes. the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, and it does use the term diabolos. That doesn't help us at all here because, again, it's reading backward. Um, mm -hmm. so the Septuagint not only is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it is pre-New Testament, but it itself is built upon, in this case, uh, two further developments. So you actually, Tim, brought up the Book of Jubilees, which is part of the, uh, uh, <laughs> right, Jewish Second Temple literature. Um, uh -huh. the Book of Jubilees connects Satan in a couple of interesting ways. They connect it to the Prince of Estima, um, directly. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the demons or devils that come from him. Uh, typologically, he's been connected to Belial by the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you have mm -hmm. a lot of development in Second Temple Judaism of the Satan figure. And I'm going to reference... Oh, that's shining out. There we go. So this is The Satan by Ryan Stokes, came out last year. Listeners, you totally can read that. There's not like untranslated Hebrew. It might put you to sleep. Um, it's a bit of a technical work, but he may, uh, Stokes' main point is that most of the development of the theology of Satan happens between the Testaments, 
but importantly, mm -hmm. happens probably before the Septuagint is written. So mm -hmm. I would argue that Diabolos is not an independent data point. It's predicated on the theological development that's taken place. It is not part of mm -hmm. the original text here. So um, I just want to push that out there. Now, we might still be disagreeing on breadcrumbs and uh, forward and backward, but that's how I would kind of respond to the Septuagint. I don't think it's a reliable, uh, giving us a reliable tradition. It's dependent on something already. Yeah, and Brian, I, I totally agree with that, obviously. Uh, I think my point is, um, and I'm glad you brought it up, because in the intertestamental period in particular, uh, there is a lot of focus on angelology and demonology, mm -hmm. right? I mean, this is where a lot of the things that we see in the New Testament uh, really come from, or at least from, are birthed from. But my, my point was really uh, maybe more simple, and it's that essentially there is uh, attestation for that belief and that identification in the Jewish literature as evidenced by the Septuagint. So okay. um, it's, not that it was, it's not that it was concurrent with the writing of the book, uh, but rather that there is a Jewish tradition going even before the New Testament that does make that identification. So we're just not relying only on the New Testament. We're also relying on other Jewish traditions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a fair point. Um, I guess I already asked a question. I'll, I'll let you ask a, a question then before I jump in on something else. Okay. So uh, you mentioned you mentioned function, and I love mm -hmm. the example you gave of the president of the United States, um, because I I think that really proves the point, right? You can have one person functioning in that role. And then four years later, or eight years later, you will have another person functioning in that role. Uh, but here's, here's my question. Uh, does it have to necessarily be a revolving position? You know, something you said, Brian, that was interesting was you think it's at least possible, or at least this is my take from you. You think it's possible that uh, the original devil, right? Or the devil, we should say, uh, held a prosecutorial position, then fell from heaven, and then another angel was appointed to replace him. Um, is, that, is that something that you see as possible? Would you say that's, that's your preferred position, or how would, how would you see that? It would make... I, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it's my preferred position, but it would make mm -hmm. sense of a lot of things because there's a lot of breadcrumbs, if we're going to use that terminology, from the New Testament uh -huh. connecting back. Now... Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's, I don't think it's connecting to Job's story. I think it's more general than that. Um, yeah. Now, I, I agree with the point you brought up that it seems a easy step to be, to move from the one that is accusing people of breaking someone else's law to saying, I'm now the arbiter of the law, right? Mm -hmm. The usurping of God's yeah. role in that. That makes a lot of sense. And so I could see that happening. But I, I have a problem and if I can combo a question off your question, my problem yeah. in seeing Satan, uh, the devil here in Job is why is he in heaven? How can he yeah. be there? What is, uh, when and where is he cast out? Because I think mm -hmm. if we're going to take this at all as being congruent with time, he should mm -hmm. already be gone. And I don't think he could be present. And so mm -hmm. he can't be there. That's hence I'm like, it would maybe solve a lot of issues if this is his replacement. So I wouldn't say it's a revolving door, um, or at least I wouldn't know if it would be, but that this would be someone that's replaced him in this position. 
Yeah. And that's, I'll say that's what I feel like is a weakness of mine. And that's a question that, you know, any seven-year-old can ask, well, how is Satan in heaven? Right. If this is Satan, how is he there? Why is he there? But, and, and as I've thought about this, this may not be wholly satisfying, but I do think that there is at least a possibility that God grants the devil a true free will rebellion but that he also makes him continue to function in his position to some degree. Um, and that, that Satan's rebellion, even though it is true, uh, that God still says, but you still work for me. Um, and, and I think we see this, and, and I know, Brian, you would probably see this differently. We can talk about it more later if we, if we want. But of course, uh, Jesus, right? And I, I believe it's uh, Luke. I can't remember the exact reference, but he says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you, right? Um, and that basically you see this function uh, that arguably Jesus is saying Satan is basically trying to show that you are not true. Uh, and of course, Jesus knows this to be the case. Um, and I do think in the book of Luke that it is pretty clearly the actual devil, right? But it's the devil doing God's will in a sense uh, despite the fact that he has rebelled against God. So I, as odd as that is, I think that's my preferred position is this is actually the devil who's continuing to function to some degree in his role, even after his rebellion. Um, and that may put us at like a, an odd juncture if that's true. Well, so you're saying that Satan made return trips to heaven at some point, at which point, yeah, I think I think that's a real possibility. That's that's at least what how I would try to, you know, uh, square that circle. Okay, so he has a free will rebellion, but is made to function. Just uh, pointing out. Yes, I yeah, it's crazy. Free as will, that but is. made it's to like, do something. And and here's here's how I would here's how I would see that. I think that part of Satan's rebellion, and this is speculative, but Paul talks about it in First Timothy, right? That you know the trap that Satan fell into was pride. Okay. And I think that that even uh, even as access to God was something that that Satan wanted to leave in his rebellion, uh, it also speaks to his vanity that I think at times he would have wanted to go and challenge God. And, and that's what I see. And this is my question for you, Brian. How would you read the undertones of what Hasatan says? You know, to me, I, I, it, it feels more than. Well, I'm just trying to look at this objectively, and you know, I think you might have too high of opinion of Job. Like it, it's beyond that to me. He says, actually, you know, God, I am challenging directly. God says to him, "Have you considered my servant Job? No one on earth is like him—a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil." And Hasatan says, "You're exactly wrong." Right? Um, to me, that is an open challenge of God's judgment in that case. Uh, so how I guess how would you just respond to that idea that that this is pretty much a, a direct head-on collision between Hasatan and God as opposed to kind of a, a conference between the prosecutor and the judge? Yeah, so I, I would say first of all, um, it's not necessarily out of character. A prosecute mm-hmm. we're assuming uh, modern jurisprudence that a prosecutor is supposed to be impartial. I do. That's a modern invention. Prosecutors are not supposed to be impartial. They are supposed to Mm -hmm. try to convict the people that fall into their charge. You're supposed to Mm -hmm. go after them. It is the judge who's the supposed to be the one that renders the verdict. Right? So Mm -hmm. God asks and, and 
if you can see the lighting up because I have my Bible now open, um, right? God asks, have you considered my servant Job? And if we're following along, mm. the Satan has just said, I've searched everywhere. So this is a fair point, right? He's like, okay, you've been everywhere. Have you seen my good buddy Job? There's no mm. one else on earth like him. A man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil, right? Mm-hmm. How honest of a statement is that? This mm. is the judge asking his prosecutor, have you done your job? Have you gone out? Now, look at this guy. He seems to be really good. He passes all the, he passes the sniff test. The Satan mm. then answers, not with a direct challenge, but a question. Does he fear you for nothing? That's mm. actually a very interesting question. And the answer to that is probably, you know what? He does kind of, his faith is bolstered by your blessings. Um, Haven't you placed a hedge around him? Haven't you done things to work in his favor? In which case, as a prosecutor, wouldn't you go, well, that's unfair to evaluate Job that way. And that's now unfair to evaluate other people that don't have that. So Mm -hmm. I would still argue he's fulfilling his function in a court setting. He is challenging, he is pushing, but that's his role. But this is also why I'm open to the idea of this could have been the role of the devil beforehand, because this is a very, you can see there's a knife's edge of how far do I push this role before I'm in uh, outright rebellion. Um, Yeah. Like I'll I'll fully admit that uh, the the oath formula he makes is a little interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. My... Uh, something that keeps me up though is the figure doesn't appear so the satan doesn't appear at the end of the book now uh we'll do maybe a little background here um the -hmm. book of job is something that bedevils scholars pun absolutely intended um from (laughs) writing from composition a popular theory i don't think one tim that you and i subscribe to but a very popular theory is that there are different versions of job that the earliest Job is this guy talking with his friends. In that vein, it matches some ancient literature we have from like Egypt, a man and his ba, which is uh, second millennia BC. Um, but that the court scenes at the beginning and God talking at the end, or maybe even the, the rehabilitation of Job at the end, are later editions. And why they're later editions comes down to the scholar. Is it, you know, trying to excuse God from doing these things? Is it Lots of theories, but right, they'll say that these stories aren't original. They've been added on. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing is um, that Satan doesn't appear at the end of the book. We go mm-hmm. just to God and Job, which I think is foreshadowed here because the Satan does say he's going to curse you to his face, which adds this kind of interesting through line of tension of mm-hmm. at some point in the story, Job will see God face to face and what's going to happen when that day comes. Mm-hmm. Satan, though, doesn't appear at the end of the story. If this was the devil, if this was the personified enemy of God, wouldn't you want a curse scene like from the garden? Wouldn't you want the Mm. comeuppance saying you tried to do this? This is in some ways there are overtures of the creation story, right? You, you, Job is kind of Adam 2.0 in this sense of there's a, there's an antagonist trying to twist God and humanity in their relationship, but there Mm. is no corresponding reply. My question would be Mm. why? One answer, and the answer I, I prefer, is because if he's part of God's courtroom and council, there's no one to get comeuppance. There's no one that has stepped out. It is now between God and Job to resolve this issue because the prosecutor mm-hmm. was not out of line for asking those questions and doing what he did at the beginning. Why would you think yeah. that Satan doesn't appear at the end of Job? 
Yeah, I, I think for me, there's two theories, right? And uh, the first is, is that he does in the form of Leviathan, right? And this is something that is beyond the course of this discussion, but right, this whole possibility that Leviathan actually represents Satan and that Behemoth that actually represents death. Uh, so I just want to throw that out there. I'm not totally convinced by that, yeah. but some people do believe that. Um, now, I think it's, it's more to show, uh, it, I think it's a rhetorical thing that part of what we see in the book of Job is that Job never receives his answer um, mm -hmm. in, in terms of, or I shouldn't say that, he doesn't ever receive his answer, but we're never told that Job uh, knows anything about the heavenly courtroom scene. As, as far as he knows, all it's just this tragedy, and he's had to trust God. And so I think even rhetorically, it wouldn't make sense to say, oh, God wants you to trust him even when you don't have all the information. Oh, but here's the rest of the information from the prologue. Um, I think actually it, it makes sense from a literary perspective to leave the reader without that information, just as Job would have never had the information uh, himself. But the reader's given the, the, the courtroom scene, so why wouldn't we be given the resolution to that as readers? We, and, and I think that's a great question. The reason for that is we have to have the prologue information to understand that God has evaluated Job as righteous and that the entire thing is premised not on... Uh, not on Job's unrighteousness. Otherwise, we might be like the friends. In other words, we have to have the information of the prologue as an, an indictment or uh, a corrective to the friend's theology. Otherwise, if there's nothing and all you have is, here's a righteous man and he suffered, we might be tempted to say like the friends do, well, it's probably Job's fault. Well, no, we know it's not Job's fault because God brings him up to the accuser. Uh, and that. so I would just argue the prologue information is necessary in order to understand the theology of the book, whereas a postlogue or an epilogue is not necessary. And I might actually subvert the point of the book, which is trust God even when you don't have the full story. Um, yeah, I, I, you know... Here's, here's my next question for you, Brian, and then I would like you to take a few minutes and tap into your expertise on the dating and why that might matter. Sure, and we've uh, got some here's good my questions question. as well from the, uh, the chat. We can jump in here. But yeah, let's, okay. go, let's go to yours, and then we'll talk dating, and then we'll bring in some of the chat questions. And, and here's the breadcrumb analogy. In Zechariah 3, Hasatan mm -hmm. is rebuked. Again, I, I find that difficult if it's meant to be a, an objective role where that prosecutor is just doing his duty, doing the work of God, sifting through, trying to find people who are pretenders. Why would, and in particular, why would the angel of the Lord rebuke him in a conflict with the high priest or a, a, a you could say tension with the high priest of Israel? Why would he rebuke him in the name of the Lord if he were just an objective duty following angel who's the prosecutor in heaven? I'm, I'm interested in your just thought on that. Okay, so I'm not as much of an expert in Zechariah 3, um, mm -hmm. but a couple things I would say. First, we are making the assumption that these are both the same figures. I'm more, right. I, I am comfortable with that assumption, but let's call that out. That is an assumption. Um, mm -hmm. Two, we are seeing a vision. And so we should also be working through what is this vision supposed to be communicating to the people? I think a clear message out of that passage is the mercy of God triumphing over judgment. So mm -hmm. that I think remains whether or not 
you know, um, it's the say, the devil or just an angelic member of the courtroom, right? Because you do have this tension of people are guilty before God. God is both merciful and just. So we have to mm. see that play out somehow within God himself and his, I, I think the courtroom is establishing that, right? There is not, mm. at least in my theology, there is not uh, some duty owed to the devil for human sin. He is out of that. Mm. It's all related to God. So we have to see that playing out somehow um, purely on his side. That's what I would say. So um, I don't know the nuances or ins and outs of Zechariah 3. Um, yeah. There's more work for me to do there. This is why this is why I like to do this, right? There, there's always more work to cover. But um, yeah. that would be my my saying is like, let's, let's be careful of stressing a vision too much. By the way, Stokes argues that Zechariah precedes Job. Uh, in terms of dating, that Job is actually the final Old Testament form of Satan as a developed character, with Numbers 22 being the earliest, which that's kind of an interesting development, but um, that's probably beyond what we'll talk about here. Yeah. Okay, well, one of the questions online, Brian, is, Mm. is, uh, I think, teed up for you. So uh, it basically is, when was Job written? That's a great question. Um, So I think that's from Jacob. And yes, Jacob, we are being bold going against Monday Night Football, but uh, <laughs> or foolhardy. I'll, I'll, I'll own full, foolhardy. So uh, here's the challenge. The setting of Job is ancient. This feels like the world of Abraham or the patriarchs. You have a guy who is acting as the priest of his own household. His wealth is measured in terms of goods, not coinage. And that is kind of important. By the time of King David, Right, we're talking about gold and silver as a measure of someone's value, uh, but Abram's value is measured in sheep and in goats. Job is in sheep and goats, right? So the setting does appear ancient, patriarchal, and that's led some to go, "Hey, maybe the story is written back then. Maybe this is, in fact, the first book actually written from the Old Testament." I mentioned it briefly. We have similar type stories of a man kind of wrestling with God and the role of the human and the divine. We have those from several cultures, uh, Egypt, uh, Assyria, Um, the copy, uh, the Hittites, the copies we have are all fairly ancient. These are uh, late second, early first millennia BC. So by that, I mean like 2200 to like 1800 BC. That's back in the time of the Pentateuch. That's back in the time of Abram. Having said that, Based on the theology, based on a few other factors, some people are like, no, this feels very developed. This feels very technical in its form of uh, Hebrew and its form of theology. And so this might actually be one of the last books written in the Old Testament. It's something that very few Old Testament scholars will agree upon. I argued in my dissertation, so this is where my dissertation intersected Job. I think Job and the prophet Habakkuk interact. Or rather, I think the prophet Habakkuk quotes Job. We do know when Habakkuk was, right? So that's uh, 6th century. So that means that the book of Job in some form equal to the material quoted existed at that time. Now, Tim, I said I didn't deal with any of these passages. I didn't deal with the prologue or conclusion. Um, I did deal with uh, a couple of the speech cycles, and I did deal with the character of Elihu who is also mm-hmm. someone that people are like, this feels tacked on because you have Job and his three friends and then just a fourth friend appears. 
I think all of those exist by the 6th, 7th century, somewhere in there. I don't know how far before that. And I don't know if the copy that Habakkuk had is the exact same copy you and I would have today. So how's that for a nice non-answer? Um, I'll, I'll leave us all with this to consider um, from Adele Berlin. She was talking about Esther, but it, it bears mentioning here. We need to not confuse for similitude with historicity. Just because it sounds ancient doesn't make it ancient, right? We have historical fiction. That's a genre. So um, I think there's some good reason to say that parts or the majority of Job are quite ancient. Um, I'm going to put it at least at the sixth or seventh century. After that, you have Baba Bathra is the first quote we or first citation we have from Job. So that's where we can definitively put it in history. But that's like, oh gosh, when is Baba Bathra? Is that third century? Yeah, I think it's so. Second Temple period. So, th <laughs> listeners, I hope that you could follow that. <laughs> that's my best guess uh, at dating. So, Brian, uh, Cynthia, Cynthia, uh, I don't know how you say her last name, Bod, maybe? Uh, uh, Beatty. When, Beatty, okay. Um, when Jesus quoted the Old Testament, would you say he was using New Testament ideas to interpret the Old Testament? Um, let, me, let me take a stab at you that. Take that That's a good question. Okay, so um, it, I think the answer is, in one sense, by definition, yes, uh, because anything that Jesus said or thought was a New Testament perspective. But this gets back to what I was uh, trying to say earlier, that the, the Jewish people who obviously in the intertestamental period in the uh, time when the Septuagint was written all the way to the New Testament, uh, I think we have to give them credit not only as translators, but as people who were closer in cultural proximity to the original writing, at which point I think we have to take seriously their interpretation, not just as an innovation, something new, but rather as a, a serious attempt at understanding the original text. Um, so that was a lot of words. Let me, let me explain a little bit more, and I'm going to use the, the breadcrumb analogy. Uh, the, one of the reasons I brought up Zechariah 3, or Brian mentioned, uh, and we haven't talked about this, but First Chronicles is, mm -hmm. uh, I think whether we see this as one figure or not, we do see the position. We see the function of Hasatan in different places. And to me, that invites us as readers to connect the dots. Uh, it is, at the very least, I, I would say, in my opinion, at the very least, it's the same function or the same office that is that is uh, that is being fulfilled in Zechariah, in First Chronicles, and in Job. And so, when I say connect the breadcrumbs, I think the Old Testament itself is inviting us to consider that position and the possibility that that position is filled by one creature. And then the New Testament then takes the next step uh, in saying, okay, let's identify that creature. And here's what I would say, even in the New Testament, we see uh, the Diablos or we see Satan, it's translated variously in the New Testament, immediately in the temptation of Jesus, where he does seem to be performing a very similar function that we see in the book of Job. Um, he's testing Jesus. He's trying to trip Jesus up in a sense, but he's also trying to authenticate him. Are you really the son of God? If so, do this. Um, and Satan may have intended to be tripping him up, but Jesus is ultimately validated as the true son of God through what Satan does. So here's, here's my argument. There are multiple references in the Old Testament we're meant to connect with the breadcrumbs. 
in the New Testament were shown a similar figure who is identified as the devil definitively, who does the exact same thing that, or a very similar thing that these other characters or this other position did in the Old Testament. And I think that's where Brian and I are on the same page. That's why Brian wants to say, well, maybe this was the role that the devil actually had. It's because the devil is doing the same thing. Now, uh, let's, there was another question that I wanted to throw in here as well, because I think it's, uh, it's by Cynthia as well. Is it possible that Satan thinks he has free will? Here's what I would say. Uh, once, <laughs> that, that'll yeah. take us down a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, well, I would just say once an accuser, always an accuser. You know, it, it's the analogy that, that I think God knows vainful, prideful beings act in vain, prideful ways. And so I don't think that God necessarily had to coerce Satan into being an accuser. I think by his nature and by the nature of his pride, God understood that he would continue in certain, in certain ways to function in that role. Why? Because Satan loves to accuse humans. Why? Because Satan, as the tempter, is really good at getting humans to mess up, right? I mean, in so many cases, he does show and expose our flaws, at which point it's, it, it seems logical to me to say Satan's role in heaven was to expose the hypocrisy of humans. And there's a lot of hypocrisy to expose, at which point perhaps, and this is, this is maybe behind, beyond the purpose of this, but perhaps there really is something to the idea that Satan felt like God was, going, was being too merciful that Satan wants to basically throw it in God's face saying, God, look at these humans that constantly defy you. Are you really going to show mercy to these people? Do they really deserve it? At which point the answer is, of course, no. Um, but I think, that, I think it's very telling that in the New Testament, the devil does continue in the function of accuser, even though he might not technically have that job in the heavenly court, which is, again, why I'm prone to say, Maybe in Job chapter one and chapter two, it really is the devil, and he's continuing in that role despite the fact that he's already fallen uh, from his position in heaven, so to speak. Um, so a couple points there. Um, yeah, first, go for it, Brian. We've now introduced an ambiguity or a challenge. What yeah. would it mean to be an accuser pre-fall? And is that even a position that exists that he could then inhabit? That's a challenge for my view and your view as well. Yes. What, and if that's not a position that existed pre-fall, some of this becomes academic and now he's doing something different, like the accuser's a new position. We could argue right. based on the last week, God builds in the trappings that we would expect. We expect a courtroom to have a prosecutor, even if there's no function for him. So maybe that's fine there. But um, that's something to really consider. Uh, yeah. What what, who, or what is he accusing pre-fall, right? Because there should be nothing there. Now, Tim, an interesting point that um, we've touched on a little bit, and I don't think we agree on, where in the mm -hmm. New Testament does it become clear that this is a singular person? I'm going to push that probably all the way to the book of Revelation. I don't think we have that idea unambiguously in the Gospels. We do have a yeah. unique tempter in the wilderness. And I think that's our first hint that, oh, this is different. Interestingly, this figure is confined to the earth. Uh, mm -hmm. Jesus says he's seen Satan fall like lightning. So somehow he's out of heaven. Again, that's what, one of my challenges to Satan coming before the throne of God or the courtroom uh, in yeah. Job 1. Um, 
But when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to his disciples, I do not think he right. means personified enemy of God. I think he means the one that acute, uh, the basic meaning of Satan, the adversary, yeah. the oppressor, the opponent. I don't think there's anything more meant in that passage um, contextually. Yeah. So uh, where do you see that line becoming clear that unambiguously we now have a singular enemy that we're focused on? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I think we see it in 1 Timothy 3, whenever, uh, whenever Paul says uh, it, he fell into the same trap as the enemy. I think we see that uh, unambiguously when Paul says the uh, devil masquerades as an angel of light. Um, and I think that even might speak to Job as well, right? Why could he come before the throne? Because he masquerades as an angel of light. But I think in Luke 22, 3. Uh, or a seraphim I've, in I've the be, garden. Yeah, or a seraphim in the garden. Um, I, but Luke 22, 3, I think is interesting. I want your opinion on this, Brian, because it says that Satan, and it drops the definite article, which, by the way, Greek also has a very clear definite article uh, that could, in similar ways, describe a title rather than a name. Um, but in Luke 22, 3, it drops the definite article, and it says, Satan entered Judas. Um, and so I think that is a pretty definitive it, it, I can't imagine, a, again, an objective, you know, prosecutorial figure entering into Judas in order to crucify Jesus. I do think that is a, a pretty clear example of a singular figure who is the enemy of God, uh, who, by the way, that's, that, that follows up on the earlier trial of Jesus where it says that, uh, and I can't remember if it's the Diablos or if it's uh, Satan, uh, which Greek word is used, but in uh, the temptation of Jesus earlier in Luke, when it says that Satan left him for an opportune time, then we come back in Luke 22, 3, and it says that Satan entered Judas. I think that is, in my mind at least, pretty definitive, but oh, and I'm I happy not, to be corrected, Brian. I would not claim that that is the prosecutorial, that is way too hard of a word to try to do live. <laughs> um, I, I would not say that that is a good character, that is an enemy, that is an opposition. See, okay. One thing I think you're assuming I would hold, and I don't, is as soon as we move to the New Testament, I think all of our usage of the term Satan is now influenced by the Second Temple writings that you have said. And okay. we are now referring to an adversary of God. I don't think okay. it's been crystallized into a singular figure until near the mm -hmm. end of the New Testament, but based on Jubilees, based on the Dead Sea Scrolls, based on development in Second Temple Judaism, I think we have it there. But my point is the Old Testament alone is not sufficient to get us there. And I don't think those figures are necessarily uh, at the adversaries in the sense the New Testament uses them. That requires mm. further development. And I would maybe argue misunderstanding is not the right word, but they've now taken a term and they've now imported meaning on it that the New Testament is going to pick up and use, right? So this mm. is something Jesus does in a different context with Daniel and the son of man that had become a term that had now been loaded in with a lot of information not in daniel and jesus said but that's what my culture assumes and i'm going to use it same thing mm -hmm. i think happens with satan i don't think it necessarily means that in the old testament it comes to mean that by the time we reach the new and so mm -hmm. every time we see it there i am we're, we're not talking about this heavenly figure in the job scene so that's where i go that's yeah. where the breadcrumbs don't lead me because i i think I, I think this is something only clear retrospectively. If we've already assumed that these are enemies here, they must be enemies there. I don't think I can naturally, from a hermeneutic, move from one to the other.
So yeah, sorry, maybe I, maybe I didn't make that clear and I apologize if I didn't, but yeah, I would say that's clearly not a prosecutorial figure entering Judas. That is, I'm right. even fine okay. saying that's personified the devil. Yeah. I'm good with that. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, let's see. Um, looking at the chat here, uh, just trying to see if you see another one, Brian, you can jump in. But we're almost out of time. We're running right in an hour. Uh, so we're going to need to sign off here in a moment. Uh, thank Brian, you, Chad, but... for being so very active. Like, there's a lot of good questions. Um, the free, there, there's several about free will, rebellion. That I, I mean, I was not being joking. That's a rabbit hole that will go on forever. <laughs> um, free will itself is a loaded term because the I'll just leave listeners with this. The question you need to ask yourself is what does that term mean? And that's actually mm -hmm. our debate. I think everyone agrees. Yeah, we've got some sort of free will. We disagree on what that term itself means. So that's where that would go. Um, but just quickly scanning through, we already got to the questions I saw. Tim, anything else? Yeah, I'll just I'll just reiterate okay. again. When we think about Job, it is very interesting and uh, to to think about the identity of Hasatan. Mm. But I want to come back around and say the theology of the Book of Job is really incredible, and I think it's a good uh, good example of how we really need the Old Testament because there is no, in one sense, New Testament Job. Uh, and, and so as we think about the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, as we think about the contribution of the Old Testament, uh, it really is a continued contribution to our own edification, right? Mm -hmm. um, that when we think of Job, we need to come to terms with our own limits. Uh, we need to come to a humility that says sometimes we speak of things we don't understand, things too wonderful for us. And so that's part of why we do what we do. We believe in the continued value of the Old Testament, and Job is a great example of that. So I enjoyed it, Brian. I learned a lot from you. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you, Tim. This is, uh, this is a, a, a view. Uh, now that we're at the end of the episode, I will reveal a little bit. I'm pushing slightly beyond what my view actually would be because I wanted to see if I could defend a more extreme view. Not sure <laughs> if I can, but it, it was definitely worthwhile. Uh, thank you, Tim, for bringing up some really good questions, some, some thought-provoking things. And, and I want to close listeners by echoing what Dr. Tim said as Job is one of the important parts of the Old Testament alongside Habakkuk and then alongside James. I think if we really want to start digging into the meat of how does God be present with us in the midst of our suffering, um, these are the books that build upon one another. James is a wisdom book, and it builds upon the stories of Job, the stories of the other wisdom books uh, to help us get that theology. So um, as, as we close, the identity of uh, Hasatan maybe doesn't matter as much, but it does help us really get into this debate and think about how to understand the word of God better which is what we're all about. Next week, we are staying with Job a little bit and with the book of Jonah. We're going to be debating, are these books historical fact or just myth? And does it matter? Until then, listeners, you know what to do. Stay cool. Stay cool.